Hey, Big Biology listeners, we want to alert you that we're doing our spring fun drive. We're not going to torture you with long statements and outtakes from our call center. We have a call center? No, I was just kidding. Uh, but we really are doing a fun drive, and we'd encourage you to donate now. And to sweeten the deal, a super fan of Big Biology has agreed to provide up to $10,000 in matching funds. So please consider making a donation today. There are two main ways you can do this. The first is to make a one-time donation at our website, bigbiology.org. The other way is to sign up to give a monthly donation at our Patreon site, which is at patreon.com bigbio. We'll apply matching funds to the next year of new donations. Thanks for listening to Big Biology and for helping us to keep the show on air. When you picture a scientist, chances are the image in your head doesn't represent most researchers. Let's take a moment to rethink our biases and work to shift the narrative within the scientific community into something that reflects reality. Join scientist and science communicator Anne Chisa as she chats with African scientists across the globe who are involved in various fields of STEM. The purpose is to amplify Africans in STEM to the world and educate listeners about their research and projects. Find out the root of why they got into science and also learn about their other interests. In this podcast, airing bi-weekly on Mondays, come learn how diverse the STEM field is, get inspired by the wonderful real-life stories of Africans in STEM, and hear from today's role models who are motivating the next generation of STEM enthusiasts. Listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Visit the Root of Science podcast on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube, or follow at Root of Sci Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Hey Art, how's your receding hairline doing these days? Receding? Ha! I think a better term would be fully receded. Oh man, I know what you mean. I'm right there with you. You know, we could get rich if we could find a cure for baldness. Hey, that's a good idea. And I recall reading recently that the androgen receptor gene on the X chromosome has been identified as the gene for male pattern baldness. I bet if we could come up with a CRISPR-Cas9 delivery system targeting that gene, that we could regain the hair of our youth and become billionaires. Ah, not so fast. I think there's already a company doing that. And there are lots of other problems. First off, it's not just one gene. Over 250 genetic variants are associated with male pattern baldness. And even considering all of them, we still can only explain about 40% of the variation in baldness. Second, baldness is a continuously distributed trait from bald-bald to just a bit of hair loss. And finally, a 2018 study led by Chloe Yap found pleiotropic effects between the genes influencing male pattern baldness and other traits, like those associated with the onset of puberty. So messing with these genes might also have some unintended consequences. Ugh, get-rich scheme immediately dashed. You know, it's super frustrating to hear stories in the news about a gene for this and a gene for that. It gives the impression that all traits are discrete and have simple genetic bases, like the way we teach introductory genetics. Big A, big A gives yellow peas, and little a, little a gives green peas. But most of the traits we care about and that biologists study are continuously distributed. This actually touches on a fundamental challenge that had to be resolved in the early days of evolutionary biology. Remember, Darwin and his contemporaries knew the traits were heritable, but they didn't know how. And this led to a big debate between two camps. 
the biometricians argued that most traits were continuous and that their inheritance could be understood as statistical relationships between parents and offspring. And the biometricians were opposed by the Mendelians, who viewed traits as discrete and argued that inheritance followed rules governing the transmission of genes from parents to offspring. This debate was eventually resolved in 1918 by Ronald Fisher, who demonstrated that continuous variation could be understood as the product of a large number of genes, each of which makes a small contribution to the trait. In other words, Fisher ended the debate by showing that at one end of the continuum are true Mendelian traits that are controlled by a single locus and exhibit discrete variation, and at the other end are quantitative or polygenic traits controlled by large numbers of loci, things like human height. Fisher referred to this as the infinitesimal model, where an infinitely large number of genes each makes an infinitely small contribution to the trait. And while we know there are not an infinite number of genes, the rise of genome-wide association studies has revealed that most complex traits are indeed influenced by many genes of small effect. Thinking about complex traits as being continuously distributed and emerging from the influence of many genes falls under the umbrella of what's known as quantitative genetics. This field has been enormously important serving as the foundation for agricultural breeding programs and guiding how evolutionary biologists study complex traits. Our guest today is Nick Barton from the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria, near Vienna. Nick is one of the world's leading evolutionary quantitative geneticists and has been at the forefront of developing and testing new theory. We talk with Nick about a diverse set of questions from how the field of quantitative genetics has bridged the gap between strictly statistical approaches and the recent avalanche of DNA sequence data. We also talk about how genetic variation is maintained in populations and how natural selection acts on quantitative traits. Nick argues that the difficulties that biologists have finding the genetic basis of complex traits are actually not that surprising once we accept that traits are controlled by many genes of small effect. We also talk with Nick about his work on hybrid zones and the genetic mechanisms underlying reproductive isolation and speciation. I'm Cameron Gallenbor. And I'm Art Woods. And you're listening to Big Biology. Thanks so much for joining us today on Big Biology. We're really looking forward to talking to you about your research and perspectives on evolutionary biology. You've worked on some of the most fundamental questions in evolutionary biology and quantitative genetics. And I think today we'll only be focusing on a subset of, of all of your research. I first became familiar with your research when I was a graduate student. I read your annual review paper that you wrote with Michael Torelli back in 1989 on uh, that had this very provocative title, Evolutionary Quantitative Genetics, How Little Do We Know? And um, as a starting graduate student, I'll have to confess that paper was uh, was really intense and I didn't probably understand all of the subtleties, but I, I was really taken and I guess surprised by how many fundamental questions or problems that I thought we knew the answer to still remained unresolved. And and I guess I'm I'm just really curious, you know, now looking back, 30 years later. What are your general thoughts on how much more instead of how little do we know <laughs> compared to then? And are you pleasantly surprised or are you are you more disappointed, I guess? <laughs> A bit of both, I have to say. So on the one hand, we know vastly more about the genetic basis of quantitative traits. I mean, that article, the 89 article, was written 
just before the explosion of first QTL studies, where one could map quantitative trait loci, QTL, using the profusion of molecular markers that came with direct DNA-based technologies. And then when we had DNA sequencing and we had even more markers, people moved on to GWAS, which is genome-wide association studies, where one basically simply takes a, a big population and tries to associate markers, SNPs, with traits. So this has had an enormous amount of funding um, in the last 20 years, I guess, from the biomedical community and human genetics with the aim to really try and find a genetic basis of, of disease traits. And as a side effect, it's been enormously productive for people doing quantitative evolutionary genetics. So yes, we, we've found far more loci affecting traits than we believed would be found, I think, in the early days. On the other hand, one could say that's with hindsight, not surprising, because we know that artificial selection works, and we know that if you select on a population, you'll move it many, many standard deviations, way outside its original range. And that really can only be explained if there are many, many variants of small effect. And I think we've really been astonished at just how many of those there are. So in some ways, it's confirmed what one could have deduced from the success of quantitative genetics. On the other hand, I think it's been very frustrating for the people funding these studies because started out doing QTL mapping, thinking there might be 10, 20 loci affecting a trait. And indeed, if you just do a crude mapping of which regions of chromosome will affect a trait, you find not too many. But that's simply the resolution of the technique. The more you work, the more you find. And people moved on to these huge GWAS, you know, of the order of a million people enrolled and uh, sequenced. Those are really drilling down and finding more and more loci of small effect. So that's frustrating because it means, of course, that you can't then do very much with the small effect loci. You know that you've explained maybe a few percent of trait variation in terms of things you could actually imagine handling, dealing with in the lab, following up. And people always talk about candidate loci. And we have so many candidate loci. What can we do with them? They remain as candidates, really. So on the side of genetic basis of, of uh, trait variation, we know much more, but we're also still quite frustrated, I think. That's hmm. interesting. You said the word frustrating and, and frustrated. I, I didn't think you were going to say that. I thought you were going to say something, you know, that, that's just like a, a really beautiful result. We're finally sort of getting down to the, the nuts and bolts of, of where this genetic variation comes from. And is, does the frustration come from not being able to analyze or manipulate individual loci anymore because there's simply too many of them? Is that what you mean? I think there are two aspects to this. The frustration on the part of the people doing most of this GWAS research, funding it, is that they can't find major effect causative alleles, which they can then follow up and, and you know, do drug design or personalized medicine or whatever. And maybe just, just following up on that, it's interesting to look at what happened in the animal breeding world, where it was realized pretty early on that you were not going to be able to find the gene for milk yield and then you know, change the gene for milk yield and get better cows. But what was realized really by Mike Goddard and others uh, was that actually you could use DNA sequence data not to do engineering, but to make a better statistical estimate of breeding value. So what you really wanted to do, particularly in the dairy industry, was decide which bull to breed from. And of course, this isn't obvious because bulls don't produce milk, but you have to infer this from the milk yield of the relatives. And you can do that more efficiently if you know the true relationships by looking at the amount of genome shared. So essentially, this is a statistical exercise where you give up any hope of identifying the actual causal alleles, but you still 
in the dairy cattle case, you can double the rate of improvement of milk yield, you know, by a few percent per year, you're doubling the rate of response. And that's worth doing. But it's very far from, I think, what people had imagined when they set out on this. Yeah, so I think one area that's kind of related to this that um, has has gotten a lot of attention in the in the past few years is really the the, the shortcoming of GWAS. And so people talk about the the missing heritability associated with traits. And so on one hand, we have the sequencing technology that allows us to look at all of these markers, and yet our statistical models are still only explaining a fraction of that variation. What are your thoughts on on the reasons for that? Okay, so I am probably have a very, very boring, old-fashioned kind of view of this, which is that it's completely what you'd expect. And it's become clear that actually our statistical models work. It's just that we're dealing with a lot of small effects. In the first few years, when people coined the term missing heritability, they came up with explanations for it, which were involving epistasis or epigenetics or who knows what. But that isn't really necessary, um, because as we do GWAS on larger and larger samples to explain more and more of the variants, you can actually show pretty conclusively that something like human height, we can explain now most of the variants if we do a big enough study. And the, the remaining, the missing component is because of things like the, the SNPs that we are actually observing and not the causal alleles, they're linked to something causal. And if you allow for that, then you know you can explain the missing heritability. We know that you know there is of the order of 70-80% of the variance in human height is genetic and is mostly additive genetic. And it's actually quite astonishing that we can explain most of that if we work really hard in terms of associations with markers we can identify. But that's with tens of thousands of markers. You know, it's, uh, so it's not a puzzle. It's something to be expected if we have a lot of small effect alleles. So, so it's another way of saying that we thought there was missing heritability, but as the power of the studies grows and we can pick up more alleles of very small effect, then we, we sort of fill up and actually come to explain the total amount of variation that we think is there. Yes, so, okay, exactly. And, and we're never going to get all of it, but we can get towards it the more money we spend. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Let me ask another question about origins of variation. And this has to do with thinking about long genome reads and, and associating SNPs with traits, so the sort of basic bread and butter of, of GWAS studies. Um, an increasing number of studies are also starting to look at big kind of structural issues in, in genomes, so structural rearrangements, you know, transversions, chromosomal rearrangements, and sort of big things like that that are contributing perhaps in some way to heritability of, of traits. So how, how is that is that accounting for some of the missing heritability? And is there does it require other statistical methods to account for those kinds of mutations? No, I, I think it'll be the same statistical methods. These are just variants that segregate, you know, essentially a Mendelian way, unless we're talking about really huge chromosomal arrangements. So SNP or chromosome rearrangement, they're sort of all the same at a statistical level. SNP, well, we're talking about small insertions, deletions, inversions, you know, they all behave in the same gotcha. way. Um, I think that it will account for some, but not a huge amount, because I think the existing SNPs will be tagging much of that. So when you see an association with a, a SNP or a cluster of SNPs, then you know you don't know which, if any, of those is causal. If you do whole genome sequencing, get all the structural variations, then it, in effect you, you found everything that could be causal, um, and there's something mystical going on. But you don't know which of the, the variants is really causing it. It may be some combination in some complicated epistatic way. You just can't, all you can do is do the statistics. So I think because the bulk of the variation, or at least more than half, will be SNP variation, that would already have 
tagged the other variation. And of course, most studies until recently in human genetics have been using SNP panels, not the whole genome sequence variation. So people are pushing for whole genome. They will therefore pick up more. I think it's an open question. It'll depend on the trait, how much of that is structural, how much of it is, is other stuff. So this also kind of touches on um, maybe some of the tension between quantitative genetics and, on the other hand, I don't know, maybe more functional genomics or thinking maybe just more about mechanism and the pathways that underlie traits. And so Art and I like to talk a lot about organisms and all the mechanisms that make up organisms and, and how they're integrated. And on one hand, it seems like the power of quantitative genetics is that you don't really have to worry about all that stuff. <laughs> you can just uh, assume that you know there, there are many loci of small effect. And, and yet, on the other hand, we have all of this increasing knowledge about biological pathways and patterns of gene expression at specific tissues and how that underlies different phenotypes. So do you ever envision sort of a future where that kind of more functional perspective and the more quantitative genetic perspective will merge and those two sides will be able to talk to each other in a more sort of productive way? Is that too optimistic <laughs> of a goal? Well, there's two aspects to that. One is sociological, really, which is that there's a real gulf between the people who do quantitative genetics and their training and the people who do functional genomics who really don't learn stuff on the statistical side and vice versa. I mean, most of the people in the more ecological side of things don't learn so much functional genomics. Um, what happens there is a matter of the education system and how students are trained. And there, I think the divide has been growing, not shrinking. Um, from the scientific point of view, I think there are, is a real question about the limits to what we can possibly infer, you know, because we're getting to those limits when we're, you know, in things like UK Biobank, where a substantial fraction of the UK population is being, you know, measured and genotyped. And there's a limit, you know, we're not going to be getting <laughs> ancient DNA from all of the ancestors and so on. Um, we have what we have. We have the whole population, whole genome sequence. And even given that, it's not easy to determine the functional causes. People have been studying model systems like sticklebacks and heliconius and so on, and really pinned down the functional genomics of a few loci. But it's just impractical to do that on a big scale. And it seems that even doing the sort of statistical systems biology type approach has limits. I and mean, the um, Jonathan Pritchard Boyle et al. paper on omnigenics really was quite provocative in suggesting that you know, even when we have all the GWAS hits and we really know which associations there are, we're not necessarily going to be able to identify the pathways because it may be that most of the variation in a trait is mediated by the very weak effects of very distant parts of the network. And then you could say, well, why can't we identify gene interactions? Well, that statistically is extremely hard. We can look at marginal effects. We can get to some extent at dominance effects. But short of doing a lot of actually artificial crosses and so on, which is limited in what we can do, it's very hard to identify beyond that pairwise interactions. There are simply too many of them. So it depends on the trait. In some systems, you know, and I think the systems we study in ecological genetics mentioned the, the sticklebacks, where there's an adaptation, freshwater versus marine environments. There we know a lot about the traits that are adapting. We can drill into that. But in many cases, and particularly with things like human complex diseases, um, it may just be impractical to use these statistical approaches. 
let me ask a follow-up that maybe builds on this line of reasoning. And this follow-up is about these ideas of epistasis and, and pleiotropy and what the implications are of having lots of loci of small effect for how we think about epistasis and pleiotropy. So, and, and just for listeners, epistasis is interaction effects between different loci and pleiotropy would be, you know, effects of individual loci on multiple traits simultaneously. I was really struck thinking about your arguments about, you know, there being hundreds or thousands of loci of small effect that contribute to individual traits and and the fact about what that implies about the pervasiveness of, of pleiotropy and and that is there there's only you know 20 or 25,000 genes say in an average mammal there's many more traits than that that we can think of uh maybe not more more than 25,000 but you know many more than 20 or 30 traits and so that implies that almost all of these loci are going to have some sort of pleiotropic effect on more than one trait so does it mean that the genome is kind of a a giant tangle of, of pleiotropy is that what that implies uh, then you wonder how it works at all because it's it's such a contrast from the sort of biochemistry textbook, you know, molecular genetics textbooks, where you have clearly defined pathways and networks. In a way, that's because that's all we can discover, you know, with our methods. And you wonder, I mean, there's two levels to this question. One is what explains the statistical variation in traits we measure? And that doesn't necessarily undermine the sort of traditional classical view of how molecular biology works, because it could be that, yes, there's you know, there are a few key genes interacting with each other to produce this substance to do this to do that to control this developmental stage but then all of the others are acting on the trait through you know general effects on health and metabolism and dynamism and you know the there are all sorts of general things which will influence any traits so height is an extreme example because that's something that's influenced by so many things all the way through development of course if you drill down to maybe fingerprint ridge counts. I'm not sure anyone's ever really worked on these seriously, but those may be affected in a much more simple way. So that, that's one level. But then at another level, you wonder whether gene regulation really is as simple as these pathway diagrams. And work done in another group here at IST, which is looking simply at the classical bacterial promoter, you know, which is supposed to be you know, one or two binding sites for a polymerase and a transcription factor and so on. Um, and it turns out that actually there are multiple weak binding sites. And the problem is that it takes a lot of work to get into these weaker binding sites. And I think we don't even know theoretically whether if you know, you're evolving an organism, is there a reason why it would evolve simple pathways that we can understand? Or is it that we have an observer bias and we tend to miss out on a lot of very diffuse function, which is really important in aggregate, and yet which is hard to observe? And, and so the idea is that m many of these effects are so small that experimentally we'll never be able to pick them up. That would be, yeah, if I wanted to be provocative, there, yeah, that would be true, yes. Um, or we might need a whole different mindset to know how to deal with them, you know, not doing it one by one. You know, I, I look at, you know, the astonishing activity in molecular biology of building up an enormous amount of information gene by gene, pathway by pathway. And you wonder how to put it all together. How do you know when you've understood a system? Because you're never going to be able to put it into a simulation and turn the handle and get an organism out. And that's not going to happen. But, but in what sense do you understand things when you have a catalogue of detailed information? But you want to know, how does this fit together? I think that's something that a lot of, uh, a lot of biologists and I think former guests on this show uh, struggle with quite a bit. And I think that also is some of the motivation behind you know, a certain group of biologists that, that would sort of argue that we need this new 
a new synthesis, um, that the traditional theory has limits and we're not incorporating other levels of complexity, either molecular mechanisms or environmental effects. And um, I'm curious, what do you think about that? It, you know, given that we can't just take all that data into our standard evolutionary theory and turn the handle and come out with beautiful answers. Yeah, I must admit, I find it a bit irritating, this whole extended synthesis business, because firstly, it's most popular amongst people, I wouldn't say outside biology, but doing history of biology, philosophy of biology. It's really quite a minority of, of working biologists who are kind of getting on trying to do stuff. And that's not to say that, of course, philosophy of biology have something to say about how we do our business and whether we can do it better and so on. But it's not that one has the sense of a field in crisis because we're missing the missing heritability or whatever. I mean, I think we work towards explaining that. Mostly that's successful. But also, I think a lot of the phenomena that they're excited about, like epigenetics, like horizontal gene transfer, transposal elements, and so on, are actually really interesting to working evolutionary biologists. And we do a lot of work on it. And we have models that can explain how selection works across different levels. I mean, um, transposable elements have had a lot of attention and have led to, I think, theoretical advances in the way we understand how organisms can coexist with selfish genetic elements without one or other going extinct, um, and how it is that a lot of the molecular machinery we look at is actually all about trying to suppress transposable elements. And that's a big area, both on the functional side and on the evolutionary side, and, of course, the standard population genetics textbooks don't include that because you're trying to teach students without driving them mad. Um, but there are really solid theoretical understandings and there are model systems. We really understand how this stuff works. I wanted to ask a question about what the consequences are of this sort of view of, of many, many loci of small effect, what the consequences of that are for how we think about the response of populations to selection and whether fitness in population changes smoothly or in some sort of, um, you know, jumpy, non-continuous way. And and I, I think like one of the implications of, of having variation at many loci of small effect is that there's just a lot of standing genetic variation for a lot of traits and that that could be that, that could facilitate a very smooth movement of a population potentially for very many generations. And the opposing way of thinking about it is that populations in some way are limited by the origin of relevant mutation, uh, re relevant variation by the process of mutation itself. And, and what I'm thinking about is some of these older studies by Rich Lensky on evolution of, of populations of E. coli. They saw in some of their experiments you know, long periods of stasis and then a jump up in fitness of the population when some new mutation arose and, and swept very rapidly to fixation. So those seem like two very contrasting ways of thinking about the response of populations to selection. And how do, how do you reconcile those, those two things? Okay, so it's interesting. I think it's really important to be clear about the difference between asexual and sexual selection, or sexual reproduction anyway. So the Lensky experiments were essentially asexual. And Asexual populations, you know, respond to selection, but much more slowly, and they require a much bigger population size. So, of course, bacteria have been immensely successful, and they've been around longer than we have, much longer than we have. But actually, when you look at the population genetics of bacteria, they look very different, I think, from these lab experimental evolution situations, because the population sizes are enormous, and 
there is a significant effect of recombination. And actually, in the long term, you can argue that bacteria have been successful because they've been able to exchange genes by kind of irregular means. And then you look at eukaryotes, which almost all share meiotic sexual reproduction more or less regularly. I mean, if not every generation, every so often. And that, one can argue, allows them to use variation and generate variation efficiently, even with a much smaller population size. It allows them to be bigger, allows them to be multicellular in the end. And so the smoothness of response to artificial selection in you know, populations of a few hundred or a few thousand really comes because there's this continual generation of variation by recombination whenever sexual organisms cross. And I find most striking wonderful experiments by Ken Weber in the 90s. And Ken Weber, you know, worked with selection experiments on Drosophila. And he realized that until then, people had never done selection experiments on more than a few hundred flies because it drove you mad trying to count hundreds of flies every generation. You know. And so he devised machines like the inebriometer, which was a kind of distillation column. Where you could put flies in and they'd go up until the ethanol vapor was concentrated enough, they'd fall over. And so... The, the ones resistant to ethanol would get further up the column. And he had a wind tunnel experiment where you could, flies would fly towards the light, and they would get stronger and then they'd fall out. So, so he could select on populations of 10,000. And when he did that, you find astonishing replicability. So you put in, you know, a few thousand flies, you select on them, and you do two independent replicates, and they do the same thing. It's very, very reproducible. And that's really reflecting the sort of store of variance in a sexual population. And it really is an argument for the efficiency of sexual reproduction. We still don't completely know why sex is favored, but I think the consensus is that it's favored because it allows selection to act efficiently. I'd like to kind of follow up on that, though, because um, even in sexual populations, a more population genetic perspective emphasizes a beneficial mutation that then is subject to a selective sweep that, that sweeps through the population and increases in frequency and so even if we survey the kinds of papers that are being published today, on one hand, I, I, you know, I see these uh, genome scan type approaches that find evidence for one or two loci that have undergone a selective sweep. And then at the same time, you know, we have all these GWAS studies that are telling us there are many loci, each one a very small effect. And I'm curious, how do we, how do we reconcile those two perspectives? Well, I think we, we aren't reconciling them at the moment because it's different people studying different kinds of genetic architecture. So, you know, I can you know, talk about my favourite organism at the moment, the snapdragon, Antirhinum, which we've been studying populations in the Pyrenees for a long time, where there's a, a narrow hybrid zone, if you like, between populations with magenta flowers, populations with yellow flowers. And if you do a genome scan, in other words, if you compare sequences between the magenta and the yellow population and you look for places where there's a sharp transition or there's an excess divergence relative to diversity um, various statistics you you scan along the genome these statistics pop up and they show spikes and we find of the order of 10 you know significant spikes and they're all flower color genes so it seems things like flower color you know, wing pattern in butterflies have a rather simple genetic basis and we can identify the loci and we can study them and that's all great but I'm always left frustrated by going to this place and thinking, well, there's a lot of other stuff going on. It's not just flower color. You know, they're adapting to drought tolerance, shade versus sunlight, altitude, all kinds of things going on. And we know there's a lot of local adaptation. And a lot of that may just not be showing up in the genome. And people are actually 
really trying hard at the moment and not yet succeeding in finding statistical ways to detect this kind of polygenic adaptation. We know how to find classical selective sweeps, barriers um, which separate hybridizing populations. We can see those, and most of the work in ecological genetics is really going on those, but it may not be representative. Do you, do you think it's partly then, um, I don't want to say maybe biased, but the types of traits we're attracted to in terms of, of studying? So you mentioned flower color as an example. So that's something very conspicuous. And so, you know, it, it, it draws our attention. And perhaps because of that dichotomy, you might have a, a more sort of Mendelian-like genetic basis versus something that is more gradual and continuous in its variation that maybe doesn't capture our attention? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I'm being a little bit unfair because I think the flower colour example is one end of an extreme. And if you look at something like the cichlid fish or the sticklebacks, where there's a huge diversity in many, many different traits in mate preference, in pigmentation, in floral, in, in morphology, in feeding behaviour and so on. So there's clearly a lot of things going on there. Um, and there the issue is perhaps more that there's a bias towards focusing on the things we can study. And so you end up studying the pigmentation difference and the more polygenic things get left behind. And even if we can map them and do GWAS and find candidate genes, it'll be very hard I mean, it, you know, in, in these natural systems to really follow up on those and work out what's going on. I had one additional question about population sizes, and this is kind of rewinding about five or seven minutes in the conversation. And it's it's thinking still about the differences between things like E. coli, which have you know, orders of magnitude more larger population sizes than do most mammals, and including humans, and, and the effect of that on the patterns of variation in, in the genome. And you know, e. Coli, e. coli also has many fewer genes than than we do. And it and I'm, I'm going to sort of venture out into a space where I may reveal my profoundly naive way of thinking about population genetics here. But but isn't it the case that when you have very large population sizes that selection can can essentially discern smaller and smaller differences among the fitness of, of individual variants. And, and shouldn't that mean that there's sort of more purifying selection across the genome in bacteria than there is in things like humans? And so is, is that a reason why you might see sort of more effect of the process of origination of new variants by mutation in a bacterial population than you do in, in human populations. I mean, it's true, definitely in principle, that in a large population, very weak selection pressures can be effective, although they take a long time to be effective. You need many, many generations. And there's an argument that, you know, the shared biochemical machinery we have, which is incredibly sophisticated, the ribosome and so on, and all these other molecular machines, that those were perfected or optimized way, way back in perhaps very large bacterial populations, and essentially all organisms you know, share these things. But you know, it's hard to get back to what were the selection coefficients involved in substituting this or that sequence in the ribosomal DNA. But on the other hand, I think bacteria, are, you know, they're more interesting than we imagine from lab populations. We don't really know. It's kind of stunning how ignorant we are about where they live outdoors, where how does E. coli get from one mammalian host to another? Does it have you know, adaptations to getting from one mammal to another, or is it just chance? And there are yeast people study as a eukaryote, but a microbe that lives outdoors, and they don't really know what it's doing. You know, it's not doing the kind of thing we make it do when we domesticate it. 
And so this sort of rather rich ecology that bacteria experience may mean, of course, that selection isn't, you know, as simple. And that, uh, in fact, you know, one paradox is that if it were the case that single mutations were sweeping through bacterial populations and just fixing, then that would eliminate diversity. So actually, the diversity in bacteria may need an element of ecological heterogeneity to be maintained. Okay, so, so in other words, this is a contrast between the way people typically grow microbes in the lab under very constant conditions, well-controlled, versus the complexity of the real world and the fluctuating selection pressures that may arise therefrom. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, you know, I, I think I would see the experimental evolution in microbes, which is wonderful and, and really instructive, as almost in the same vein as simulating, because you're controlling things very precisely. You are learning new things about the organisms and about the processes but there's a lot more out in, in the real world. Yeah, so that point about ecological heterogeneity, I think, is a, is a good segue into um, thinking about more generally about environmental effects. And um, that's something that I'm very interested in in my own research is, is the role that phenotypic plasticity plays in, in the evolutionary process. And so, you know, in, re in reading a lot of your papers, you know, I may have missed it, but I haven't seen a lot of papers where you actually talk about what role environmental variation potentially plays. Because when we think about sort of many loci of small effect, polygenic traits are also notoriously sensitive to, to the environment in terms of the phenotypic expression. And so do you have thoughts on, you know, within a fluctuating environment and this kind of environmental heterogeneity where the same genotype can produce different kinds of phenotypes, what role do you see that playing in, in terms of this kind of polygenic selection? Yeah, so I haven't written very much about it because it's hard enough doing the simple things, fine, so. Um, and I suppose the real question is not so much dealing with the fact that alleles have effects that are conditional on the environment and there's a, a G by E interaction, but rather the extent to which that plasticity or lack of plasticity is adaptive. So on the one hand, you know, it's astonishing that a particular DNA sequence can generate a developmental program that's extremely robust to the environment so that the effect of things acting in development can be um, you know, somewhat independent of environmental conditions. And on the other hand, it may be, you know, there are, you know these examples of bicyclists, example, where the whole phenotype can switch depending on the environment. That's clearly adaptive. And so in between, the question is, to what extent is the degree of plasticity shaped by selection for either more variance or less variance, and how clever can organisms be in anticipating environmental variations? Because in some ways they're having to predict from the environment they're experiencing when they're young or as a parent to saying what would be the optimal phenotype to produce in the next generation or the next time step. And I think people vary, it's a psychological thing really, what people vary a lot in how clever, if you like, they think organisms can be in adapting to complicated environmental circumstances. And of course, the answer to that isn't a theoretical answer. It depends also on how predictable the environment is. And what's astonishing to me is that organisms survive in very unpredictable environments. Yeah, I guess, you know, for me, I've been kind of disillusioned a little bit by um, some of the terminology that gets used with regard to plasticity. So genetic assimilation, genetic accommodation. And even though I'm very interested in plasticity, I've stopped using those terms because it doesn't seem like anybody really agrees on what those things actually mean. And instead, I've, I've, I've kind of been thinking just more about how does the environment alter variation 
um, heritable variation. So we know that because of the, the plasticity that we were just talking about, that that can change the, the kind of variance that selection sees. But also kind of to your point about how adaptive the plasticity is, the environment can also shift the distribution of phenotypes closer to a new optimum. And that kind of adaptive plasticity should weaken selection, but it can also shift them further away and make selection much stronger. And in which case, either the population has to rapidly evolve or it goes extinct. And I feel like that's less controversial to kind of put it in those terms than to kind of describe it as, is this genetic assimilation? Is this <laughs> genetic accommodation? I don't know what those terms mean anymore. So, <laughs> I mean, we get hung up on these terms. I mean, it's true across the whole of biology. I've just been to a conference on speciation and, you know, people don't agree on what reproductive isolation exactly means. And in some ways, you know, really arguing through that allows you to understand the subtleties of the processes better. On the other hand, it makes dealing with the literature very difficult because no one's using words in the same way. Um, and I'm not sure what the solution is because you could say, well, we just have to specify the model. But then, you know, people vary in how quantitative they are. And actually, even if you're quite mathematical, then a model needs a narrative. This was a nice um, article by Sally Otto actually a few years ago pointing out that the importance of models in biology was really the narrative that links them to the questions we're interested in. But having said that, I, I don't know how one deals with questions like plasticity, where are people from very different angles coming in and trying to address the same problem. I think it might be a good time to do some things on hybrid zones and speciation cams that you okay going there? Yeah. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about reproductive isolation, so that's, I think, a good segue. For much of your career, a good chunk of it, you worked on um, a set of things that involve some really interesting evolutionary genetics uh, around in the areas of speciation and hybrid zones, and that is sort of understanding how does speciation happen and what happens when populations or species come into contact and there's some reproduction happening in a contact zone and exchange of genes and introgression across those those zones. Um, so maybe just first give us just a little bit of a historical overview of how your thinking has changed about those processes over the past, say, 30 years or so, and, and you know what, what all of this revolution in our ability to see variation has, has done for thinking about speciation and hybridization? So maybe I'll just come across being very stuck in my ways by saying I don't think my thinking's changed that much in that, you know, I started out working on hybrid zones and a whole range of things, grasshoppers to start with and then butterflies, toads and so on. And all of these, you know, I started out trying to understand this very striking phenomenon where you get this very sharp interface between one population and another. But these can be very different populations. Um, you know, the most divergent I ever worked on was Bombina, Bombina versus Berigata, two named species adapted to very different habitats. And yet these two species of toad meet in hybrid zone around the Danube Basin that's about six kilometers wide. So really very striking. Okay, so you try to understand this and you realize that actually, and this was apparent, you know, in the old days of electrosis, you didn't need a huge genetic resolution to realize that actually just because they were producing hybrids and interbreeding, there was a fairly free exchange of genes. And so at a locus that wasn't maintained different by selection, there wouldn't be a dramatic isolation between these. Reproductive isolation, even across these very strikingly distinct forms, is not that strong. And I think what we've discovered with DNA sequencing has been 
that when you trace deep genealogies, you find that there's a lot of discordance between sister taxa, and that this implies some kind of introgression, even in situations where no one would really have suspected it. So um, Drosophila persimilis and Pseudobscura, which Mohamed Noor and, and Jody Hay and others studied um, way back, turns out that most of the genome is more or less well mixed, and that the distinction between these two apparently quite clear species, which very rarely hybridize, less than one in a few thousand in nature, um, that's carried by a set of inversions. So part of the genome is reproductively isolated and most of it isn't. You know, it's very widespread and people talk about speciation with gene flow and it's not at all difficult for speciation to happen with gene flow and for gene flow to continue for a long time after you form distinct species. So when you were saying that large portions of those genomes of the two Drosophila species are well mixed, that means that there's sort of ongoing hybridization between them and those sections of the genome act almost as if it's just one giant species? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know from just looking at the flies that, that mostly they don't hybridize, and the rate of hybridization is very low, one in a few thousand. But from a population genetic point of view, what matters is the effective population size times the rate of hybridization, n times n. And since the effective size is you know hundreds of thousands, a million, then nn is large. And so if you trace back the genealogies, over most of the genome, you're going back hundreds of thousands of generations. And over that time scale, they're pretty much well mixed so that you wouldn't be able to see the proper species phylogeny if you looked at most of the, the genes and looked at their ancestors. Yeah, gotcha. Right. But, but that's not a perspective that you had going into studying hybrid zone. That's something that must have come out more recently because the sort of classic way that we learn about speciation is you know, allopatric speciation is easy. Sympatric speciation with gene flow is really hard. And, you know, I, I would imagine that's still kind of common in, in most evolutionary biology textbooks. Yeah, it is true. But I think I got a different perspective through working on hybrid zones in more or less spatially continuous populations in parapatry and realizing that, you know, divergence with gene flow is perfectly straightforward. If you have a big Big range. So I was working on originally grasshoppers, which had a different chromosome arrangement in different places. And the interface between those was about a kilometer wide, so relatively narrow. And that's, you know, you don't need much selection to do that. You need about you know, half a percent selection will produce this sort of interface. So it's very striking, you know, when you look at the data, but you realize that it just doesn't affect most of the genome. You know, it's, it's a very, there are other things distinguishing these grasshopper taxa but they still don't really impede the flow of genes. So you can have really striking mosaic patterns, striking divergence, and yet most of the genes are able to mix. And in particular, genes that are advantageous everywhere will just arise here and they'll spread. So what are the loci in these, say, inverted regions that uh, associate with populations or with species? Are are there particular sort of subsets of the loci that, that account for those differences? Well, I suppose I have to admit that I stopped working on grasshoppers and toads because they have huge genomes and you can't do the genomics. So, you know, we still don't know in those systems. Um, and, and now in the snapdragons, of course, we do know that the, the loci that are clearly maintained distinct, which is a, a dozen or so loci, those are flower color genes. And, you know, the, the collaborators in Norwich who get from the molecular genetics are digging into, you know, finding out how they affect gene regulation, how they actually affect the distribution of the pigment on the flower and so on. Of course, there's a lot of interest in general in what it is that generates reproductive isolation and 
a lot of interest, more interest now than there used to be in so-called ecological speciation, where you focus on things selected to do different things in different habitats, like the freshwater versus marine and sticklebacks and so on. There's also a lot of stuff coming out in Drosophila, especially on the role of selfish elements, of co-evolution between driving elements and suppressors of drive, which and that arms race plays out differently in different places, and then you can get into pathologists. So my take on it would just be that a lot of evolution, a lot of selection is happening everywhere all the time, driven by internal arms races, by adaptation to changing environments. And as a side effect of that, you get reproductive isolation. It's not that there are special speciation genes by much. Yeah, that's interesting, though, because it seemed like uh, there was a movement to, you know, I, I saw lots of papers being published, you know, where there was a sort of a search for these speciation genes that are involved in reproductive isolation. Has that sort of line of research kind of died out now a little bit? Or are we thinking it's a little more complicated? No, no, it's it's very active. It, it, yeah, it's very active. And I think, I must admit, when I was starting out, I was obsessed by wanting to count the speciation genes. I didn't necessarily think they'd be special, but I wanted to know, were there 10 or 100 or 1,000, you know? separating these taxa and that was completely unclear before we had sequence data you know and now it turns out to be a large number but i think people hope that they'll get some kind of consensus view of what kind of genetic differences are separating species and therefore what kind of processes drive it is it sexual selection are these mostly mate preference genes is it um, selfish elements in which you know and so you can get some sense of that at the moment i think we're still at a stage of accumulating, you know, stories about different systems, and it's hard to generalize. And maybe there won't be a general answer. It will depend on the organism. It will depend on Drosophila, one thing, mammals, another thing. I don't know. Do you think that, or at least maybe, do you have an impression if the genes that are associated with this reproductive isolation are confined to certain functions related to, say, specifically having to do with like reproduction or sperm binding with eggs? Because it, it's, it strikes me that like selfish elements can pop up anywhere and they can just kind of build up, but they may or may not necessarily affect a, a specific kind of function that would be important for actual reproduction. Um, when we found out what these genes do, it's been kind of idiosyncratic and perhaps surprising. So I think the first speciation gene, or one of the first identified, was um, Dave and Presgraves discovered that there was a gene in the nuclear pore, which is responsible for transporting RNA through the nuclear envelope. And that was causing an incompatibility between two sister Drosophila species. Now, you'd think that this kind of nuclear pore is doing an absolutely crucial, conserved function. Why would it change? And I'm not sure it's been sorted out yet, but it, it may be because of some sort of co-evolution with a viral pathogen, which is getting in through this mechanism. So this is something one couldn't have predicted. Yeah, I, th I, I don't know whether we'll eventually be able to put together enough of these stories about enough systems to really understand what's going on. Yeah. Maybe before we leave this topic, we mentioned the sort of challenges of defining reproductive isolation and uh, you had this recent paper with uh, Anya Westrom, where you you sort of defined what or tried to define what you thought was reproductive isolation, and uh, there were a large number of commentaries sort of that sort of chimed in. And again, I here's a term that you know I've heard millions of times, and I thought I knew what it meant. <laughs> Why is reproductive isolation uh, so difficult to define? Yeah, I, I sort of have the same reaction because before we got into writing this. 
I thought I knew what it meant. And then you start thinking about it more and you realize it's subtler. And, uh, and, and now I also now think I know what it means, but at a different level. So, so one reason why I think there's a difference of opinion, why those commentaries were coming at different angles, is that people study it in different ways, using different techniques. So one is people who go and they just look at organisms, they maybe make some crosses, they say, what's the fitness of the F1 and the F2? And they think of reproductive isolation in terms of hybrid fitness, thinking of the first few generations of hybrids. Then other people at the other extreme try and make inferences from genealogies and ask, do the genealogies at different loci stay together, implying some sort of isolation? So they're looking at a very long time scale. And they do these um, so-called IM models, isolation with migration models, to take the genetic data and say, we can infer the rate of gene flow. Of course, the rates of gene flow there are very, very low, as I was mentioning earlier. You know, it only takes a few exchanges or a few genes, few hybridization events per generation to produce a lot of homogenization. So they're looking at different timescales, looking at different phenomena. And then I was coming in it from somewhere in the middle, working on hybrid zones where you have a cline and you can estimate the rate of flow of genes from one side to the other over timescales of a few hundred generations. So we were trying to come up in that paper with a definition of reproductive isolation, which was basically that it's the reduction in gene flow due to genetic differences as opposed to geographic differences and so on. So we came up with a definition which we thought applied to all of those three levels. But when you try to apply it in specific cases, it turns out there are subtleties and pinning it down to a number depends on the context, depends on circumstance. So I think there is a single concept we've got of isolation, but people are studying it over at least three different timescales with different sets of techniques. And so does that mean we have to be a little bit more sort of flexible about the definition, depending on the timescale and context that we're looking at? Yeah, it's it's difficult because I don't want it to sound as though it's all completely vague and you come up with your own definition. I think there is a verbal definition, but it's always true that when you try and make a measurement and quantify something, you have to take into account the context. Is it there are two genes exchanging at equilibrium? Is it that there's a, a sort of a continuous climb? Is it that there are genes coming and going over a long period? I mean, all of these things give you a different framework and you have to then measure the reduction in gene flow and the extent to which that is reduced by genetic differences. It will come out differently. There's no one magic formula, which is right or wrong, I think. Well, I wanted to turn at this point to a couple of wrap-up questions, sort of getting to the end, and I want to zoom back out a little bit and uh, ask a practical question first. So, so I would say in biology and in the media, we often hear that modern progress in genetics is going to result in all kinds of miraculous things, including um, using one's individual genetic profile to get good personalized medicine, cure genetic diseases through gene editing, develop better crops, better animals, um, and maybe even bring back extinct species. There's been this big splash in the news recently about the dodo. And, and I guess, given all this that we've talked about, do you do you share this excitement for these kinds of practical applications, or does it still seem like a you know, a distant dream in some way that may never be quite realized. Yeah. I mean, I do this stuff because I'm excited about the basic science and understanding how the world works and understanding how biology works. And I think that's actually important in itself. One shouldn't forget that because I think it gives us a perspective on where we are in the world and that, you know, we're on a small and fragile planet and we shouldn't be messing it up in the way that we are. And I think having an evolutionary perspective makes you realize the richness of diversity and the, the very fragile and extended process that has led to 
the accumulation of diversity we see. So I would say that actually, in terms of the practical problems facing the world, there are very simple things we know how to do, not chopping down the forests, you know, that preserves biodiversity. And so I'm a little bit skeptical about very elaborate um, technological ways of solving medical or conservation type problems, because they're often a distraction from actually really doing what we know we ought to do. But, you know, thinking more specifically then about what's the kind of statistical population quantitative genetics I do, you know, has, has done it, you know, it, it has actually been useful in animal breeding. And a lot of the stuff actually we do in the basic science came out of statistical methods developed way back in the 50s and now applied using sequence technology. And that really does improve crop yields and so on. And in human genetics, you know, the, the sort of GWAS studies are useful. I don't think they're going to be useful in personalized medicine. I mean, I, I would not want to go to a doctor and be faced with this enormous spreadsheet of my probability of X, Y, and Z. And what do I do with it? I mean, I don't okay, know. Here's your GWAS score. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I know that I should, you know, eat less butter and, and get more exercise, <laughs> but that's true, whatever. But on the other hand, I mean, this, this sort of thing, you know, can be very useful, first of all, in um, by understanding heterogeneity in response to drugs and really interesting cancer genetics where you, you can try and produce treatments for particular cancers based on their particular um, sequence and so on. And also in, in optimizing screening programs, you know, it, it may well be worth, you know, it's not useful to know that this person, this individual has a 50% or 60% or 70% chance or whatever, but it's useful at a population level to say we should focus our efforts on these people and not these people. Of course, that requires an economic and a healthcare system, which is not what we have, at least in the in the US. I'm I'm very curious about your path in evolutionary biology because, you know, people who I interact with are either sort of like empiricists that are out sort of collecting data and analyzing it. Um, there are theoreticians who maybe don't do any empirical work and think about a lot of the models and. There may be sort of computational people who try to work on methods to sort of analyze the data and help test the theory. But I think one thing that really strikes me about your research program is that you span all of those different kinds of approaches, at least within evolutionary biology. And I'm, I'm curious if that was a conscious path that you took, that you felt like you needed to touch on all these sort of different aspects, or did it was it more serendipitous? Did it just kind of come about by chance? Or how did you come to do the things that you do? Yeah, so I think I ended up on this path, thanks in large part to the degree in Cambridge, which is still running called Natural Sciences, which is, you know, a degree where you have to study all the sciences. So you go in, I was going to do physics, and then I realized biology was kind of more interesting. I'd probably been doing too much physics at school, and then all this new biology looked really amazing. So I sort of switched into biology, but I had the sort of mixed training. Um, and there aren't so many places that do that. The other was that I went out and I started studying this system in the Alp Maritime in the Grasshopper Hybrid Zone with Godfrey Hewitt because it was in the Alps and it seemed so much more exciting than something in a lab in Cambridge. You know? And then I got there and you see this really striking change. And when you get out there, you map, you know, we had a little field microscope and you go out, you catch some grasshoppers and measure the frequency of two chromosome types. And you plot it out and you see there's a nice sigmoid prime, which you can explain with a very simple theoretical model. And so I got into really using the theory to explain, you know, the patterns that I was seeing and the patterns you could see in other data. And that's sort of inspired me throughout. So I've published probably much more theory, but it's often been inspired by 
projects, you know, field work or, or real data. And I think it's important to sort of always remember where the data is coming from, what you can measure, what you can't measure, what's causal, what isn't causal. Yeah, so we usually like to wrap up and um, give you the opportunity to cover any material or answer anything that you feel like we we didn't quite touch on. I was thinking more about the last question you were asking and thinking about how it is for people coming into the field now. And in some ways, there's quite a diversity of people within evolutionary genetics, anyway, coming from bioinformatics and computer science and straight biology. But it's also a field that tends to get a bit fragmented, and it would be really nice if people could, could see the connections and if there could be more kind of programs where people could talk to a diverse range of disciplines rather than separating into their own little specialties. Do you, would you have any advice for graduate students who might aspire to do that and how, how to go about getting that kind of exposure? Well, I mean, I could, <laughs> I should put in an advertisement for our ISD Austria graduate program, which is just taking in applications at the moment. But anyway, um, it is an unusual place in that it, on the European scene, in that it takes students with a whole range of backgrounds and they can move it across fields. But that is true also in the US system. And uh, US graduate programs are, I think, more diverse and flexible simply because they give students more time to actually find their own project and find their niche. And so it's maybe a plea for the space that's for people coming into the field to find where they want to go, which direction to go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that seems really important. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much, Nick. Really fun conversation. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't like what you hear, well, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks also to interns Dana Dela Cruz and Kyle Smith for helping produce this episode. Keating Shamiri produces our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tiran Costello. 